Okay, while everybody's finding their seat, I've got a couple of announcements to remind everybody about. First of all, on Monday night, so this the second event with uh, Charlie Clough's teaching was last night. He has one more Monday night for the kids at Camp Arete. The second announcement is that early voting started yesterday. This is very important for everybody to go vote in your runoff. This is a runoff from the primary back in March, and because of the virus, it's been postponed so that um, it is being held. Actually, the election day itself is Tuesday, July 14th, but early voting started uh, yesterday and continues through Friday, July 10th. And then the third announcement of significance is that As you saw from the email I sent out today, our um, cleaning lady, Selena, has the COVID virus, and she will be out for two or three weeks. And if you would like to volunteer to come clean the church, it's not as overwhelming a task as some of you might think, because we don't use prep school. We're not using anything other than Uh, the auditorium, and there just aren't a tremendous amount of people who are uh, dirtying things up. So um, if you could come in on Fridays to help clean the church, then go to the westhoustonbiblechurch.org website and send us an email or contact Cheryl Jeffries directly. So that would be cleaning on Fridays. I think that's pretty much all the announcements that that I have to make. So we have a great passage to look at this evening. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. As we have studied so many, many times, we are to walk in fellowship with the Lord. That means that emphasizes a lifestyle. That's the whole metaphor of walking. Fellowship implies a partnership. That is a partnership in our spiritual life, our spiritual growth. When we sin, uh, that walk is uh, abrogated because of sin, and so to recover, we need to confess sin. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the privilege, the freedom that we still have in this nation to meet as believers in Jesus Christ, to teach your word, to teach the whole counsel of your word, to be able to speak freely that which may not be politically correct, that may not be uh, what a lot of people in our generation would like to have people hear from a pulpit, but it is your eternal truth. Father, give us a passion to study your word, a desire to know it, because as we live in difficult times, we have to be prepared, and the only way we can be prepared is to be prepared mentally and spiritually, to have our our thinking fortified with the truth of your word. And Father, as we look at so much that is going on in our world, so much uncertainty, so much chaos today between the virus and the various uh, demonstrations and protests and everybody virtue signaling to the evil side of the aisle. Father, we pray that you would uh, just protect us, give us the boldness, especially we pray for our representatives in Congress, for those who are believers, those who hold to a correct uh, understanding of the Constitution, that you would uh, protect them, give them courage, give them strength, give them energy, to accomplish what they need to accomplish to continue to protect the Constitution. 
And Father, we pray for us that we might be diligent in our study of your word because it's your word that gives life, teaches about life. It is your word that is a light to our feet, a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, not give up, but to stand fast in every area of life. And we pray that we might be strengthened, encouraged, and gain insight as we study tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 42. 19, verse 42, we're continuing our study in 2 Samuel in the life of David. Last time we looked at the 19th chapter as David is returning to Jerusalem. He has now crossed over the Jordan. He is on his way back to uh, Jerusalem itself from going to Gilgal where we found him last time in verse uh, 40. And tonight we will start with verse 41, which clearly indicates a conflict, a growing conflict within uh, the tribes of Israel. Now this section that we're in, where we started several, several lessons back with the rebellion of Absalom and now the rebellion of Sheba is very important. It's interesting how we have arrived at this section of Scripture during all these things that are going on today because the, we learn a lot from the, this section of Scripture. For today, we have rebellion growing in this country. It's a rebellion against the past. It's a rebellion against history. It's a rebellion against what is perceived to be injustice. It is, above all, a rebellion against the Constitution. As far as many of these people believe, and as far as a lot of people in this country believe, uh, we need to get rid of the Constitution. A lot of people who are judges in courtrooms do not have any respect for the Constitution. They're just making laws up as they go along. I had a man running who's been a judge in Harris County, is now running to regain his seat in a court here in Harris County because in the last election, due to straight-ticket voting, he was uh, basically fired from his job, as were, were all the other Republicans and almost all the judges in Harris County who had any experience, and all of them had experience. They were all Republicans, but they were all fired in that election, and he and one other Republican judge is running to regain their seat right now. And both of them made the same comment, that the, the second biggest problem with all the new Democrat judges, of course, everything in Houston is nonpartisan. Y'all believe that, right? I have a bridge for you. I will sell you. Um, but uh, according to both of these men, the second biggest problem is these new judges don't show up to work. They don't show up in the courtroom. The biggest problem is that when they do show up in the courtroom, they just make up the law as they go along. And it's just it's made a travesty out of the courts in our city and in our county. And so that's one reason that we need to be going to the polls and voting in this runoff and then voting in November. Make sure you know who is who and why you're voting for them. But there is a rebellion brewing. It is antagonistic to the Constitution. It's antagonistic to the Declaration of Independence and all of the ideas and values of the founding documents. And if you pay attention to the rhetoric that's going on today, it, it, it is amazing that these people have come through an education system in the United States. But that points out the problem. They have come through an education system in the United States, an education system that has been taken over by an intelligentsia, by an academic elite that are hostile to the meaning of the Constitution and hostile to the background of, of the Constitution. And they are the, the, the people who are behind all of these demonstrations. It, it may have been triggered by the very unfortunate, illegal, and horrible death of George Floyd. It may have been triggered by that, but it wasn't long within 
36 or 48 hours, the leadership of various anti-American organizations were already primed. They were just waiting for, for the opportunity, for the situation, for an event that they could take advantage of in order to create chaos and disorder and anarchy in this country. Now, they may not achieve their goals this time, but each time we have these events, they get closer and closer, and their desire is to overthrow the government. And what you need to be aware of is that the thinking of the, of the, uh, of the minds behind this, of the people who are truly uh, dictating the uh, policy and the strategy and the tactics of these organizations, hate Christianity as much as they hate the Constitution and the history of America. They are truly out to overturn the form of government that we have had. And it may not happen this time. It may not happen the next time. But each time, you can think back over the last 20 or 30 years, and you can see each time they're pushing the envelope. They're pushing the envelope. And so we have a, a tremendous problem with organizations like Antifa and organizations like Black Lives Matter. They know what their goals are. They know what their objectives are. Uh, and I'll talk about them next time as a result of going into an application uh, from this. But at the very core of this entire movement is a rejection of everything that made the United States of America a beacon of hope to those around the world who lived in situations where they were uh, mired in poverty or they were held down by uh, various cultural and governmental uh, policies and enslaved by autocratic and tyrann tyrannical governments. That's why people wanted to come to the United States. But the United States that they dreamed of is about to disappear. And it's, been, it's no longer really the United States that they dreamed of. And so if we're going to preserve a nation that is a beacon for liberty and freedom and for truth, then there needs to be a radical change. We all know what's going on right now. We read the news, we watch TV, or we listen to talk shows, and we find out what's going, going on with the tearing down of statues, police-free autonomous zones that are just turning into anarchy, riots, protests, demonstrations, the destruction of private property, the destruction of businesses, uh, with no regard for who owns them. They, they talk about, I saw a wonderful video, I just felt so sorry for these women that were business owners in the black community that had their businesses burned out, destroyed, looted, everything, and they were just coming out and yelling at these other black, these other black folks that were out in the... Um, out in the street saying black lives matter and they said you don't care about black lives we're black we have lives you've destroyed our life our livelihood uh, you're terrible that kind of thing doesn't get out on the on the news and so people don't under understand these things what we're witnessing is rebellion and the word of god has a lot to say about rebellion as a lot to say about uh, authority the authority of government and it is directed to Christians, even those who lived in, in, in and under uh, horrible, tyrannical uh, leaders, such as Nero, hardly a worse leader in the Roman Empire, who persecuted Christians. And yet, under his reign, you have Peter in, second, in First Peter saying, honor the king. Paul in Romans 13 saying that, that God has ordained these governing authorities. And so we have to look at these principles and understand them. And as we go through this section of Samuel looking at the rebellion of Absalom and the rebellion of Sheba, I want to pull this together next time and see what we learn about the, uh, the anatomy of a rebellion. What does it look like? What are the causes? What are the real issues? Go back and look at the fact that there have been a number of uh, revolts and uh, rebellions covered in, in the Scripture, and the Scripture has a lot uh, to say about that. But before we do that, we need to finish this section looking at the Sheba Rebellion in chapter 19, starting in, actually in verse 41, and 
hopefully we'll get towards the, uh, the end of the chapter. So what happens in verse 41 through uh, 43 at the end of chapter 19 is we see the fault lines in Israel. Every country has certain fault lines, certain divisions, just like within a family or within a marriage. There are some things that folks don't talk about, you don't think about too much, you don't make issues out of, but there are areas of disagreement. But if you start focusing on those things and pounding on those things and and um, making mountains out of molehills, making big issues out of these areas where there are these little uh, cracks and fissures, then you're going to deepen those cracks, you're going to widen the fissures, and before long uh, you're going to see a a revolt take place. You're going to see fragmentation. And that's the kind of thing that we're witnessing in Israel. We had seen the root of this problem in the Israelite culture actually started back during the period of the judges. Twice in the book of Judges, you have Judges 18.1 and a parallel passage that talk about the fact that, that there was no king in Israel. There was no human king in Israel, but there was a divine king because according to the Mosaic law, God was the king. God, it was a theocracy. But they had rejected God as the authority, and that comes out again in, as we studied last week or the week before in First Samuel uh, chapter 8 on thurs- Thursday night, that when they told came, the leaders of Israel came to, uh, came, came to Samuel to say, we want a king like all the other nations, Samuel was very depressed. He took it personally. He goes off. He's talking to God, and God says, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. But they've been rejecting God since the begin, since the generation after the conquest. And with each successive generation, it got worse and worse. They became more and more like the Canaanites surrounding them. God would bring discipline upon them through an invading army, and they would come under slavery and oppression for 40 years. And then finally they would turn back to God. God would deliver them, and they would be okay for a few years, and then they would repeat the pattern, and you repeat the cycle over and over again. But some of the things that we see about the fault lines in Israel, for example, you have the tribe of Dan. Dan is not a very powerful tribe. Their land is along the coast, the, the, uh, the coastlands where today you have Tel Aviv and Haifa in that area. It's called the Shephelah. And they couldn't really conquer the Canaanites that were there, so they sent out some spies to find a better place. They ended up up in the north at the area that is now referred to as Dan or Tel Dan, the archaeological site there. And they introduced a horrible form of idolatry into uh, Israel at that time. Uh, Before they made their migration out of the area, or maybe they left a few of their people behind, you had a man by the name of Manoah who was a Danite. And he and his wife were unable to have children. And so the angel of the Lord appears to his wife and says, you're going to have a son. And He's going to be a Nazarite from birth, and he's not going to cut his hair or or touch the grapevine. He's going to have a Nazarite vow. And, of course, that was Samson, who was the worst judge, and he was from the tribe of Dan. Benjamin was another tribe that had serious problems with uh, sin and evil. We have the episode that's given towards the end of, of Judges in Judges chapter 20, where there is a Levite. We later find out that that Levite is the great-grandson of Moses. And he is an apostate, and he is traveling with his concubine, and his concubine is gang-raped in Gibeah, which is uh, where Saul's going to be from later on. And so there's this horrible episode, if you remember, where they, the Levite decides to shock uh, the, the, the tribes and call them to a war against, uh, against Benjamin, and he cuts her body up into 12 pieces and sends those out to, to, the, uh, to the different tribes, and that results in a civil war with Benjamin, which led to a massacre of Benjamites, and the destruction of many of their cities. Now, all of that's background to understand the significance of God choosing Saul 
as the first king. Saul is from Gibeah. Saul is um, a uh, the first king of Israel. He's a Benjamite. And then the second king that repl- replaces him is, is David. David is from the tribe of Judah. So you have this fault line. Right there you have the those in Benjamin who are still loyal to their kinsman Saul. And then you have those in Judah who are loyal uh, loyal to David and to his his lineage. After Saul died at the end of 1 Samuel, we went into the early chapters of 2 Samuel, and we saw that there were still many who were loyal to the house of Saul. In fact, we studied in uh, chapters 2, 3, and 4 the episodes related to uh, Abner, who had been Saul's general, and he aligns himself because he wants to be the real power behind the throne, and he aligns himself with Saul's sons, Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth had no training, he had no personality, he had no strength of character or leadership skills, and Abner wanted to run him so that he could uh, run the nation and, and split it off into the uh, northern tribes. So you see the beginnings of this fault line between the ten tribes and Judah. And then we have the Absalom rebellion, and as David was fleeing from uh, Jerusalem, we saw the two episodes where Ziba, who is the uh, servant of Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, the grandson of Saul, Ziba comes with his uh, manipulations and lies to try to steal all the property from Mephibosheth, and he feigns loyalty to David, which eventually will uh, be discovered. And then you also had um, Shimei, who's a close relative of Saul's, who is cursing David and throwing rocks at him and his, and his mighty men and his soldiers. And all of this because of these, these divisions in the land. And we know that in the future, that after Solomon dies, the nation will split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel in the north, and then the southern, you have the two tribes, which are basically Benjamin and, and Judah. Benjamin just basically was small and by this time gets absorbed into, into Judah. And the principle that we see here is every nation has differences. No nation is perfect. If you study the revol- major revolutions in the world, it's always led by somebody who has a bunch of complaints about how the system doesn't work. And then they bring in a new system, and that system doesn't work because no no government system in this life is going to be perfect. They're all going to have problems and flaws because they're run by men who are fallen. And this is the other problem, this this sense of perfectionism, this utopic ideal that we, we can really create a perfect government. No, we can't because it's going to be run by imperfect men. And so in one sense, no revolution... Uh, political revolution is ever truly successful because it's just replacing one set of evil fallen men with another set of evil fallen men, and we're all evil. I remind you of the survey that just came out from Arizona Christian University that I've discussed several times on Thursday night that indicates, that, and we saw this last week, that now 62% of Americans believe man is basically good. Now, we saw that that has come down a little bit from the 80s when 83% thought that man was basically good, but it's still uh, almost a two-thirds majority that have a false view of human uh, of the human race. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And that's not talking about unbelievers only because believers still have a sin nature that is deceitful and wicked. So the principle we see in all this is that every nation has differences. And when the, nation, when the differences become significant enough, someone comes along and seeks to take advantage of those divisions for their own purposes and overthrow the legitimate power so that they can move in and take over. It's all motivated by arrogance and power lust. And no Christian should ever have anything to do with that. Now we get to the background of the divisions in Judah, between Judah and the other tribes in verses 41 to 43. Verse 41, or 41 says, Just then 
all the men of Israel came to the king. Now, that's the, those who were aligned with Absalom. And what we learn from this is mostly it's the other ten tribes because they have a complaint about Judah. All the men of Israel came to the king, said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the, the Jordan? And so I want to remind you that earlier in the chapter, Judah wasn't welcoming of David initially. I think they were fearful because Absalom had started the rebellion down in Hebron, which is the capital, the center of Judah. And so they did not think that David would be kind or gracious to them. And David, as he prepared to cross the Jordan and come back in, into Israel, he sent uh, Zadok and Abiathar down to uh, Judah in order to talk peace and say, you can come back. Uh, David is not going to hold anything against you. He says, speak to the elders of Judah, saying, why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? Since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house. You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? And so as a result of this, the hearts of all the men of Judah were swayed, just as the heart of one man. So they sent, word, sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. Then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to, meet, to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. So they have come with all that they can bring with them. It's a, it's a great time. They're going to help David and be there for David. And this is what has upset the men of Israel, is that the men of Judah have come here. They helped you cross the Jordan. Uh, why have they been given that, that privilege to treat you that way? And so then the men of Judah retaliate. They get back at them. This reminds me of children bickering on a playground. Who's going to get the favor of the parents? That's, a, that's what it's like. It is small-minded, and it reveals a lack of character among these leaders. This is not all the men from Judah or all the men from Israel. That would be too large of a group, but it's the, the leaders, and it's a significant contingent from, from each group. So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel because the king's a close relative of ours. Because the, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense? Or has he given any of us a gift? And you see, apparently what they're alluding to is that when Saul was king, because Saul was a, a manipulator, that Saul would give various favors to the Benjamites. And so because they were his kin, kinship, his kinfolk, then they would uh, be given special privileges and special opportunities because they were close relatives. And so the men of Judah said, we don't have any of this. David hasn't done any of these things. We're not getting anything out of this. He's just our close relative. And then the men of Israel um, retaliate, and they say, that, well, we have 10 shares in the king. There's 10 tribes, so that's what they're talking about, 10 shares in the king. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. You know, you're just one tribe, but we're 10 tribes, so we have a greater right to David than you do. So they're arguing about who's going to get clo the, the closest to David. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? And we don't know who wins the argument. But it appears that Judah wins the argument because of what happens next in chapter 20. But the writer of Samuel inserts his view and he says, Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. They could outshout out the men of Israel. They could call them harsher names. They yelled at them. They yelled louder and eventually they wore down uh, those from, from Israel. And so this sets up an extremely divisive uh, situation. As these two groups, uh, it's also, if you read through this carefully, the two groups are very much focused on themselves. They use a lot of first-person plural uh, pronouns. 
And so it's all about them, and that's always a sign of self-absorption. We can think recently of presidents who have overused I and me and my in speeches, which indicates a complete self-absorption, which is the foundation for arrogance. And that's exactly what we see here. Arrogance always breeds division. And what we're seeing in the tribes of Israel is a tremendous amount of arrogance. And this is, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, this is exactly what happened in the United States in contrast to England in in regard to slavery. And in the United States, there was a tremendous amount of arrogance and legalism in the North as a result of the legalism that came out of the Second Great Awakening under Charles Grandison Finney. Most of the time, you will go to uh, some school and they will tell you Finney was a great evangelist. That's because they've never read him. He didn't believe everybody was born a sinner. Everybody's born basically good. Because everybody's born basically good, they're perfectible. Because everybody's perfectible, the nation's perfectible. We just have to get rid of our national sins, so let's do away with slavery. And he founded a college called Oberlin College in Ohio. And Oberlin College was the, was, was the home of the radical abolitionists prior to the war, to the war and so you have this this extreme arrogance on one side what happens is when you get somebody operating on extreme arrogance on one side you get an equal but opposite reaction on the other side and so you have this explosive arrogance in the south nobody gets off scot free on this thing nobody was good and they end up uh, going to war over the issue because their religious foundation was legalism. In contrast to what happened in England at the time under Granville Sharp and William Wilberforce and others who had a true evangelical view of man, that man was basically a sinner, but we need to restrain sin, and slavery was a sin. So they're not operating on arrogance. They're operating on Humility, And you see that in the hymn that John Newton, John Newton was one of those uh, men associated with Wilberforce and, and the others, and he was a former slave trader who was uh, saved, and then he, he left that, all of that, so he understood the evils of slavery, but they didn't get caught up in the reactions of arrogance. And so arrogance is always divisive. Arrogance always separates people. And when the motivation is self-absorption, it just creates more and more of a division, which is what happens at this point. And it generates out of the tribes of Israel. And in verse uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 1, we have a very interesting opening to this verse. In the English translation, which is accurately translated, it says, and there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. He blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. Let's all go home. Now, it has an unusual verb here at the beginning, and I didn't put it in here, but it's the word kara, and it has this sense of... Um, it's not the idea of chance. That's how we read this. Well, it just so happened, you know, with a little irony and sarcasm. God has a plan. God lets something happen. And so it's it indicates that this is something that reveals the the hand of God. It is not something that happens just as a result of human planning. Uh, it just uh, it just appears from our perspective to be coincidental. But from God's perspective, he has a plan. And that plan had to do with, with Sheba, who is a rebel. And that is another interesting word here, because the word that is translated rebel is a phrase. It is the phrase Ish-Belial. Now, we've talked before about uh, B'nai Belial, the sons of Belial, the Belial was a uh, reference to those who were uh, out of line, who were lawless, who were rebellious. And so the best way to translate this 
is that they were unwilling to submit to the law of God. So that's the term that's translated rebel. Those who are rebellious against authority are also called, as Eli's sons were, the sons of Belial. So you have the sons of Belial here, and they are, uh, he is like them, and both of these groups were unwilling to submit to the authority of God. And that really is the ultimate issue. When we talk about rebellion, we talk about rebellions that take place in countries. It's a rebellion against an authority. And as we'll see next time, every authority is established by God. Why does God make such an issue out of authority? Have you ever thought about that? Why in the world is there such an issue about authority in the Bible? Why does God talk about the fact that the man is the head of the home uh, and the woman is to submit to the leadership, to the authority of the man, to the headship of the man over and over again? Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman all this time, over and over and over again. Why is it that whenever Paul talks about these things, he goes right back to creation? God created the man first. He created the woman second. And it is the woman who steps out of line and eats the fruit first. And so part of the curse on the woman is she's going to uh, desire to control her husband. And the curse on the man is he's going to desire to rule in a harsh way over his wife. Why is all this going on? Why is authority so important? Why does God say to respect authority even when the person in that authority position is wrong? What was the very first sin? The very first sin. Lucifer rebelled against the authority of God. All rebellion is therefore tainted by that original sin of Satan. That's why God always makes an issue out of that, because whenever anyone is wants to overthrow, rebel against, disobey a legitimate authority, it's because they think they're greater. They think they're better. It always comes out of arrogance, and arrogance is destructive. So Sheba is identified here as a man of Belial. He is rebellious. He's divisive. He's, it's interesting that he's not described as one who has aligned himself with the family of Saul or with the tribe of Benjamin, but he is setting himself up to be an independent ruler, separate from either the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of, of, uh, of Judah. Now, he says something very interesting here. I want to go back just a minute to a previous verse here, 1943, where the men of Israel answer the men of Judah, and they say, we have ten shares. This is an unusual word that is translated shares. It's an unusual idiom. And the word there is the word yod. Yod is the Hebrew word for hand. But it also had other connotations. It has connotations related to measurements. It had connotations related to uh, setting up monuments. In fact, it is sometimes translated that way. That is why the Holocaust memorial in Israel is called Yad Vashem, a hand and a name. But literally, it means a hand and a name, but it means a memorial and a name. Because in the Holocaust, the, the Nazis would take the, your name away and would just identify you, especially at Auschwitz, which was the only place where they tattooed numbers on. They would give you a number and they would tattoo that number on your, on your arm and you, you became a number. You were depersonalized. They had taken your name away from you. And so you have a monument and a name. And they, they do a tremendous amount of research out of Yad Vashem uh, you go, if those of you have gone, gone with me and we go through there, you get to the Hall of Names and you look up and you have uh, pictures and you have all these names that are there. They're trying to get, find out everybody who was uh, slaughtered, murdered in the Holocaust so that they can restore their name. That's the idea there. So to make them a person, 
Again, we think about a phrase that we often find in the Scripture related to praising the name of God. The name has to do with his essence, with who he is. Uh, There's a significance there that people need to have a name. Well, here it doesn't have the connotation of of a... of, of a monument, it has the idea, though, of, of an, a, an inheritance. And it, it, so it measures something. It's a synonym, but it's not the one that's used in Joshua, which is where the inheritance, the tribal allotments were passed out. There you have these two words used over and over again in Joshua. Helic, uh, which means a portion or a share of inheritance. That's the word on the lower left. That's the word, we have no share, no chelic, uh, no portion or share of an inheritance in David, nor do we have an inheritance. It's a, par- a synonymous parallelism, so it uses the other word, nachala, uh, nor do we have a possession or inheritance in the son of Jesse. Uh, we have nothing to do with him. That's basically what he is saying. He's not going to provide anything for us, so to your tents. That's kind of an a- anachronism because they didn't have tents at this time. When they first came into the land, everybody lived in tents. By this time, they still have, they have uh, brick houses and permanent dwelling places, but they still had this, in, this, this idiom for going to their homes, that at the end of a war, everybody went to their tents, even though they're no longer living uh, in tents. So this is the introduction to the rebellion of Sheba, and also... He says, uh, it says in the middle, and he blew a trumpet. Now, what do you envision there? Some brass instrument? It's a shofar. He's got a ram's horn. Now, this had also had great significance because this is how you would uh, traditionally uh, announce the presence of a king or call the army into, uh, call the army up so that they could. Uh, go to war, and so he sounds a ram's horn, which would summon troops to battle. But they're not going to battle. They're going to go home. Now, this is an interesting chapter because it starts these verses from uh, 1941 down to 20, verse 2, talk about the, the, the factors leading up to the rebellion and the start of the rebellion. And then when we get into the next section uh, where we go down through about verse uh, 20 or 21, or down to actually, yeah, down to about 20 or 21, it talks about um, other factors. And then it comes back to what happens to Sheba. So we'll break it down this way as we go through the chapter. Uh, what happens in verse 2, every man of Israel deserted David, followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to the king. So it fragments the nation. And then it shifts away from Bichri. We have this a verse that talks about David and the concubines. These are the concubines, the ten concubines he had left behind to take care of the palace. And then Absalom came in and Absalom... Uh, raped those concubines out on the rooftop of the palace to show that he was now the the man in charge. And so what happens to them? And then Amasa, who was uh, the general uh, that uh, Absalom had, uh, has been forgiven by David, and he's been put in charge of all the armies. And so David sends him on a mission to assemble the men of Judah, and he fails to do it. That's in verses 4 and 5. He orders him to do it in three days. He doesn't come back in three days. And so that is taken, doesn't overtly say this, but it's taken as an act of rebellion. And most uh, students of this section indicate that that's that's what happened, is the fact that Amasa did not obey David was a sign that he was not loyal to David and that there were some problems there, which is why Joab is going to come along and uh, and kill him. So we then shift back to the main scene in two verses in 6 and 7. And then Joab will kill Amasa as they are on the way to the north. He will kill Amasa in verses 8 to 13. And then Joab will have 
an interesting little peace talk with a wise woman uh, where Sheba has taken refuge and she will come up with a plan for how they can end the rebellion. So that takes us down to the first part of verse 21. So let's start working our way through this and we can do it uh, pretty quickly. David's concubines become sexually quarantined. This is really an interesting little episode because we don't have anything like concubines in our culture. We don't really under understand this. Uh, I've read different scholars on different sides of this issue as to whether or not a king actually had sexual relations with his concubines. Some say it wasn't mandatory, it wasn't necessary. Uh, you think about the fact that... Um, Solomon later has 600 wives and 300 concubines. And as Pastor Hintz used to say when he was teaching my high school teen class, when I was a high school kid, he'd say, why would a man with 600 wives want 300 concubines? And so there's debate among scholars as to just what was involved there. But what had clearly happened was that Absalom had taken these 10 women and he had raped them, he had had sexual relations with them, and so therefore David could not take them back. Because in the action that Absalom had performed, he was saying, I'm the king, I'm taking all of the possessions of the former king, and I am now the ruler, and all that he had is now mine, and I am in authority. If David had forgiven them, because they actually had, had done nothing wrong, but if David had brought them back uh, into his harem, then uh, he would be doing the same thing in reverse. He's not going to legitimize any of Absalom's actions. He's not going to act like a pagan uh, toward them. And so he is going to uh, put them in isolation for the rest of their lives. He knows that they're not at fault, but he knows that that this is not something that he can uh, that he can validate. Uh, Evans, in his commentary on this, says some interesting things. He says Absalom's defilement of these women meant that they could no longer form part of David's court, but neither were they eligible for normal marriage. See, they can't go out and find another husband. They can't be joined to the court. It it would not be correct. So David is very honorable. And he sets them aside in a special place. He provides for them financially, takes care of them completely until the Lord decides it's time uh, to take them, uh, take them home. So David is not going to lower himself, which is what it would seem to be. He's not going to lower himself to the level of, of Absalom. And three basic reasons, first of all, that he had a respect for the Mosaic law and for morality uh, and respect for these women. Uh, second, his responsibility and grace orientation led him to take care of them in a magnanimous way. And third, that all of this evil came not, it wasn't their fault, but it came because of Absalom's own uh, evil nature and evil intentions. And so David is really doing the best that he can do in the situation. And so they are basically treated as widows. They're, they do not, uh, are not able to remarry, and they live in seclusion, and they are provided for in every possible way. Then the next couple of verses deal with Absalom's failure to assemble the men of Judah. And you can look at what the uh, text says here in verses 4 and 5. And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah, that's calling for the uh, army from the tribe of Judah, uh, assemble them and bring them here in three days. And remember, it's only about 18, 20 miles down to Hebron from Jerusalem. So you can call them up and you can get them here easily in three days and present here yourself. Now, some think that this was a test to see if Amasa was really loyal to David and is really going to be obedient to David, and he fails, uh, completely fails that test. And in verse 5, so Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, 
but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. So this indicates that he is not uh, loyal uh, to David and that he has probably got something underhanded uh, going on, which seems to be the case because he's going to show up in the north in just a short time. So that's our little interlude there. And while that's going on, we go back to the main scene. The main scene is, remember, it's the rebellion of Shiva. So while David is waiting for Amasa to bring in reinforcements from the tribe of Judah, David said to Abishai, Now, Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. That is a profound statement. He thinks that, that what will happen with Sheba's rebellion is going to be much more dangerous than Absalom's rebellion. Now, why would that be? Well, remember God... If the covenant has been made, I I talked a lot about that when we were on the Davidic covenant, that it probably wasn't made until after this. But if it had been made, uh, then uh, Absalom would still be a descendant of David, and you'd still have a son of David on the throne. If Sheba was successful in a rebellion, it could end David's life and then Sheba would not be a Davidic king on the throne of Jerusalem. Also, Absalom was replacing his own father in his rebellion, but uh, Sheba was not. Sheba was going to set up an alternate state. He was going to split the nation. He was going to divide the nation, and he would set up his own kingdom uh, in competition in the north. And as a result, he was uh, just coming out of left field. He had no lineage. He had no background. Of course, he was not uh, anointed by God or appointed by God. And it's kind of interesting that in other literature of the ancient Near East at this time, that that in other dynasties, you would have, you would would trace the, the kingly line. And then it would go from one king to a king from who had usurped the throne, and he didn't come from the uh, an aristocratic family. He didn't come from uh, a position where he was a cousin or a nephew or someone like that. And in the Assyrian king lists, kings that had no uh, lineage, no uh, uh, no connection whatsoever to the royal line, were designated by a term which basically meant son of a nobody. They had no no right to the throne whatsoever. So Sheba is a son of a nobody. He's the son of Belial. There's nothing good that is that is said about him. And then another thing that I've touched on this, but he and his followers wanted to split the kingdom. They wanted to secede from the the union and split off the northern tribes uh, apart from David. So all of this was uh, very wicked and very evil, and it was, in some sense, an attack on the lineage of the Messiah, because the lineage of the Messiah would go through, would go through David. And so, uh, in re- response to this, uh, Abishai is given the instructions that because the son, uh, because Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom, take your lord's servant. And pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. He needs a rapid reaction force to go immediately after after Sheba before he can get set, before he can organize himself, and before he can get away. And so we're told that Abishai, who of course is Joab's brother, they're both David's nephews, Joab's men, not Joab, Joab's men, along with the hired mercenaries, the Carathites, Pelathites, and then David's mighty men, the warriors that had been with him during his days uh, when he was chased by Saul, uh, went out after him, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Shiva, the son of Bichri. And then we get into this really nasty little episode where Joab kills Amasa, and it reminds us of Joab killing Abner earlier on in Second Samuel. 
So Joab's, uh, we're told when they were at the large stone, which was in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. So Joab has now joined them. Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at its hips. And so this is Amasa. Um, and he and as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in his stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai's brother pursued Sheba, the son of of Bichri. Now this happens where? In Gibeon. So I got a, ran across this in my, I'll have to get out of that. This is a video. Lagos Bible Software has put together some really interesting visuals now. They have sent teams to all of the Bible lands where they've done all these videos and created everything. This gives you an idea of the geography in Israel. Here's the Dead Sea. Over here you see a white spot, and that's going to be Jerusalem. And then we're going to see where Gibeon is located. And I will pause it as we go through because we're going to do a flyover of the country of Israel. Now we see Jerusalem come into focus and Gibeon. You see, here's Jerusalem. Here's Bethlehem right here. And here's Gibeon just to the north. Bethlehem is about three miles from the old city of David, three or four miles. And so is Gibeon. In fact, Gibeon is within the city limits of modern Jerusalem. So this is all very close together so that... um, they haven't gone very far from Jerusalem as they're, as they're headed north. And what you can see here is roughly the, what they call the Way of the Patriarchs, and that is the, the path, the road that, that Abraham took. Here's Bethel, and if you keep going north, as we'll see, you'll see where Shechem is and then going on into the north. So here's uh, Bethel. You go up the Jordan River. Now we're looking south from the north. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's Capernaum over right along in here. You look back, here's Nazareth, Megiddo, and now we're headed back towards the south, looking north, and you get a good visual there of the, uh, of the topography, the, the hill country of Israel. I just thought that was a, a, a great uh, image that they had put up there. Well, let me see if I can know how to get out of that. There we go. Now back to Keynote. Okay, so Amasa kill Joab kills Amasa and his body's there by the trail. And he's he's still hemorrhaging it's it's a it's a gross scene and as the troops are coming up, they don't want to pass him. They, they're just looking at this poor guy suffering there by the side of the, of the trail. And one of, verse 11 tells us, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, whoever's favors Joab, whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa's wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa off the highway throws a garment over him, and then he saw that everybody uh, uh, finally would go go by after he removed him in verse 13 from the highway. Then the people would go north to go after, um, after Sheba. In verse 15, we read, Then they came and besieged him in Abel of, of Beth Maaka. Now, it's interesting. In Lagos, I have a New King James Version, and in Accordance, I have a New King James Version. I'm not sure what the print version... Let me see. 
I now have a print version in front of me. It's Abel of Beth Maaka in the Lagos version. It said Abel and Beth Maaka. And they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Now, this brings up, I think I have it. I'm going to see if I can get over to it. It wasn't just here. Well, that, that's, I need to get into Lagos. So Lagos is here, and ah, here we go. Got it on this screen. This is a an image of, of the map of Israel. Here's the northern northernmost part of the Dead Sea. Over here you have Enrogel, which is just outside of Jerusalem. So as I move the map and we zoom in, you will see Jerusalem appear right about here, I think. There we have Jerusalem. And so this is Gibeon as well right here. And this uh, gives you a little bit of an idea of how close all these areas were. Now, the other thing that I wanted to show by bringing this map up is, well, that's not moving, is just north of the Sea of Galilee here, just off the map, which I can't get to move any. Oh, there we go. Here we have Dan in the north. And if I move in just a little closer, it's not showing up, but Beth Maaka is located right here just to the northwest of Dan. So that's in the northernmost area of of Israel. So they're going all the way to the north the Shiva has gone as far away from Jerusalem as as he can. Now we'll go back to the text. Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maaka. They cast up a siege mound against the city, stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. So you have a, a great description of the siege here, and yet it seems like Sheba is well Uh, well protected. And it's at this time that we come to Joab's encounter uh, with the wise woman in 2 Samuel 20, verse 16. So at this point, a wise woman comes out, and this was not unusual in the ancient world. There are examples, for example, among the Hittites of sending women or elderly people out to do the negotiating with an enemy because then they're not, they probably won't kill them. And so they would send out a woman. So this wise woman, elderly woman, comes out and says to Joab, listen to me, come nearby that I can speak to you. In verse 17, he comes close to her, and uh, she says, basically they go through this little negotiation back and forth, and so she gives his advice, her advice in verse 18. She said, they used to talk in former times saying, they shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. So she's setting things up for, I've got a good plan for how we can end this. She said, I am among the peaceable and the faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Joab gave his explanation. He said, well, because of Sheba, he has let her... Uh, rebellion against King David, and he then gives the gives his instructions, deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. So the woman in her wisdom goes to all the people. They have little uh, secret communication pipeline among all the people, and they devise a conspiracy, and they uh, attack Sheba, cut off his head, and throw it to Joab. Then Joab blew a trumpet. Again, it's the shofar, the ram's horn. And they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. Again, we have that same idiom. They all went home, 
and Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. So this is how the rebellion ends. Now next time we're going to come back and look at the dynamics in this rebellion and compare it with Absalom, see what we learn, what are the characteristics of these rebellions, and then compare that to other rebellions we see in Scripture, and then look at what the Bible teaches about obeying authority, and look at how, look at what's going on around us a little more perceptibly to understand the dynamics here. So we'll do that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at this passage of Scripture, to come to understand that there are lessons here related to authority, related to wisdom, related to military action, related to putting down a rebellion quickly, strongly. Uh, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom as believers living in these difficult times as to how to respond and to have faith and trust in you that no matter how chaotic things may be that we are going to relax, we're going to be calm, we're not going to panic, we're not going to fear, be fearful, we're not going to cave into mental attitude sins, and we're going to trust you and be an example, carrying out our mission, which is to make sure that the gospel is made clear and understood by people, that they may understand the real source of, of peace, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.